Uh, I watched both of the movies on YouTube. I mean, they pretty much have like every silent film I've discovered over the years on yeah. YouTube. They have like all the fucking Soviet montage films up there. Did you watch this version of Ganga Bruda on YouTube that has like a man at the end giving a lecture? No. <laughs> With like his headphones? <laughs> I watched one though that it had, it had funny titles. Um, occasionally a title would come up and I don't know like from what or how or where it was generated, but like clearly on just like the YouTube upload that was like, if you're looking for the fashion items in this video, go to this link. And I, I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> that it's like whatever group is uploading shit that they have something for more modern and contemporary stuff that it's like tied to, right? That it's like some kind of thing where you could be like, oh, like I like that guy's jacket or whatever. And it's somehow tied to that. But it was coming up for this video and I was like... <laughs> Who the fuck? <laughs> Who's gonna be like? Uh, I didn't go to the link, you know. Now yeah. I probably should have. You You're know? like that guy's suit's looking really good. Can I? <laughs> can I get that? Yeah, I would have taken you know? a few of those suits. Yeah, send me the link. <laughs> yeah, I'll make an order. Yeah. A lot of good, a lot of good tuxes, you know. <sighs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth is, guys, starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? You crown them, man. But they are who we thought they were. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I am one of your hosts, and I am here with Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a theme for the week, and the other two hosts are challenged with selecting films that react to that theme, and we hash them out here together uh, as a little hive mind. And <laughs> <laughs> so this week, uh, it was me. I was up. And I was thinking about how, you know, we've tried to cover a lot of ground here on the gauntlet and hit different eras of film, different countries. And one area that we haven't really explored yet was silent film. And and Marsh was really talking about this a lot lately. He was like, you know, we haven't we haven't done silence and it's driving me nuts. We we haven't talked about silent films on the gauntlet. So I thought, you know what, why don't I throw Marsha Bone here and I'm going to get some some silent films on the pod and I'll call it the universal language um, as we discuss silent films through the context of the original theory that perhaps it could be the universal art, that it could be something that was easily translatable to across all these different countries and borders and it would just be images that people would read and uh so funny enough i throw that bone to marsh and he picks a film from the 30s that has dialogue in it uh and th th that surprised <laughs> me a little bit synchronized <laughs> no no but we'll 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 get more more on that later but um <laughs> Yeah, no, that was so. It, it, this week is a little more of us just sort of addressing a blind spot, but um, yeah, I guess you know what? I, I guess I've teased it a little bit. Marsh, go ahead. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you brought to our discussion of the universal language? I'm giving you grief here. Well, 
Thank you, Ryan. I was trying to find uh, a silent film from a country or an industry that I had really didn't have experience with or maybe was off the beaten path, you know. I had the virtue of picking after Andy told me he was going to pick his film, and so I thought, okay, he's picking a sort of German expressionist thing, so it, it's just hard, though, right? Because so many silent films are lost, so many of them aren't really available in good versions or whatever, so I was looking at, like, things from China, I was looking at things from, you know, uh, far-flung places and uh, came across some Brazilian cinema, quasi-silent cinema. Um, uh, And so I picked Ganga Bruta, a.k.a. Brutal Gang, a.k.a. Rough Diamond, from 1933. It is written and directed by... Umberto Mauro, who, as I discovered in the process of watching this film and and learning a little bit about him, is considered a a bit of a legend in Brazil, and uh, specifically in relation to the 1960s Cinema Novo generation of Brazilian filmmakers who were really inspired by Mauro's work when they looked back at the history of Brazilian cinema. And so he became a North Star for a lot of those directors 20, 30 years after the fact. But in his lifetime, Mauro was essentially a regional filmmaker. There was no industrial center for film production in Brazil in the silent era. There were various regional production hubs that would pop up and and Mauro essentially in the 20s went around you know, in his home state, just asking businessmen if they would fund his films and and striking up these ad hoc partnerships. And so he is considered a hero, you know, by the Cinema Novo directors because he just was out there doing it and he was not a part of any industry. And so his films have a, a sort of handmade quality to them, even though they're also quite distinguished. And he did eventually, you know, move to Rio and make some films there, including this one, which came from his Rio period, although the film is not really set there. So he's got this regional vibe uh, and really like shows off the, the countryside and the beauty of Brazil and the realism of that, that poetry, uh, I think, appealed to a lot of those filmmakers later. So this film is, as Ryan was alluding to, not exactly a silent film, although what was? Um, But this film specifically has a Vitaphone soundtrack, which means it does have music and sound effects and also some almost dubbing kind of going on in certain sections here where there is recorded speech. But uh, it's as much of a silent film as Sunrise. So uh, in that spirit, you know, it counts, right? And I think, you know, as Ryan and I were were sort of texting off pod about the hybrid film, you know, caught between the silent and sound eras and how it almost indicates like a a different direction that cinema could have gone in entirely. But anyway... (laughs) We'll get to that. It was very fascinating. You know, it was, the film was planned as a silent film, but there were delays in production. It took two years to shoot. And in that time, the producer was like, the industry's changing. We need to have sound. So even though it was planned and shot as a silent film, they sort of, at the end, 
put all the sound in. A very similar story to uh, Milestone's All Quiet on the Western Front, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. That they, in turn, even had two versions. They had the silent version, and then they had the sound version as well. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's that period of time, right? And the film itself is... I guess it's kind of narratively fairly uh, simple, so I'll describe the plot here. An aristocratic man who is an engineer murders his wife on their wedding night when he discovers that she has been with another man and has deceived him. And because it's early 1930s Brazil, he is acquitted in a, you know, as a crime of passion. And Marcos, this character, flees to the countryside to sort of get his head straight and do some soul searching. Uh, And there he oversees the construction of a factory while falling into a love triangle with, well, we'll get to that. But um, (laughs) from there, there's a lot of cutting between uh, romance and industry in a way that interestingly prefigures, you know, the fountainhead among other things, right? But yeah, it is, it, it's, a, it's a very strange film. It's a very beautiful film. It's also got some, some brawling in it, a little rambunctiousness in it. And yeah, it's, it's very lyrical, very poetic. And yeah, that's Ganga Bruta, 1933. Yeah, it it doesn't surprise me that you mentioned that it was originally conceived of as a silent film. Um, And I was just giving you grief about the fact that it had some dialogue because this film really does address the prompt very literally, I would even say. Uh, Even though it maybe has moments of dialogue with subtitles on screen, it is still very much an, an image forward, first and foremost film. Similarly, so is the film you picked, Andy. Tell us a little bit about that language that is very different than the language in Ganga Bruta, but both universal. Yeah, when you gave uh, the topic, I naturally went to, for me, I think my, my favorite region or country or mode of silent cinema, which is Soviet montage, the work of the great... Soviet uh, mad scientists that were working uh, in in Russia at the time, but you know it occurred to me that I think I've I've been sort of Russified quite a bit. I've sort of picked a lot of films dealing with <laughs> the Soviet Union uh, in one form or another, and uh, I you know I don't want to become uh, typecast on here in terms of my picks. <laughs> so I went to my other favorite mode or yeah country of of uh, the silent era, which would be Germany and the work of the German expressionists. I am quite a fan of that style, that approach to to filmmaking. And I'm sure today we'll get into the reasons why. Uh, I find it to be endlessly fascinating. But um, I did pick one that I had not seen before. And I came across a film by the director Paul Lenny from 1924 called Waxworks. And this is a film in which a poet played by William Dieterle is sort of 
arriving at a at a carnival. There's this big carnival going on in a in a German town, and uh, he he meets the owner of a a waxworks. You know this this waxwork exhibit at the carnival, and his striking daughter. And they, uh, knowing, finding out that he's a, a, a poet, a writer, the, the owner tasks him with writing a backstory on uh, several of the, the figures in his, in his exhibit. These historical figures, the characters are Harun al-Rashidi, the Caliph of Baghdad, Ivan the Terrible of Russia, and Jack the Ripper, who in the film is known as Spring-Heeled Jack. So this, this writer is, is tasked with, with coming up with a tale for, for each of them, a backstory. And uh, he does so. He sits there with the, the owner and, and his daughter and, and scribbles a couple tales. And the film then takes us inside those tales. And we get this sort of episodic film that, uh, you know, has sort of two lengthy tales and one very short tale, which isn't even really a tale, but we'll get into that. And yes, you know, it's it's got a lot of what you would expect in films from this time and from this place. A lot of darkness, a lot of light in, in constant battle, murder, horror, violence, terror, existential dread, all of the hallmarks of the German Expressionist movement. It also has three of the most famous uh, German actors of this period. It's sort of like the big three of this time period. You have Emil Jannings as Harun al-Rashidi, the, the Caliph. You have the great Conrad Feit as Ivan the Terrible, and Werner Krauss as Jack the Ripper. Werner Krauss, for those who, who don't know, uh, is Dr. Caligari, another quintessential, maybe the quintessential German expressionist film for, for so many. And yeah, uh, Paul Lenny was a sort of interesting guy. I, I'd heard the name before, and I was unfamiliar with his work, but um, this was sort of early on in his career as a director. He actually would reach bigger fame and bigger recognition when he was invited to the United States by Carl Lamely and Universal. I often talk about this in my in my classes. Universal was very excited by the work of the German Expressionists and, and Lamely had this vision to, to bring that look, that style to America. You know, he wanted to introduce horror to the American audiences. And so he basically just started importing over talent from the German Expressionist movement. Paul Lenny is a director, famously as well, perhaps one of my all-time favorite cinematographers, um, Carl Freund, who would be the cinematographer of Dracula and go on to work in a lot of those iconic universal horror films. Um, and this was uh, quite an experience for me, and I'm very excited to, to, to dive into it with, with you both today. And it is technically a silent film as well, Ryan, so I think we... We covered our bases, you know. You did, you did. And, you know, one of the things that I guess we could just sort of get started with right off the bat is the fact that both of these films, you know, what they have in common, they are both 
love triangles and rather perverse love triangles at times. Waxworks is sort of a series of love triangles, both though, whether it is going after the same woman um, as, a, as a partner or perhaps even Ivan the Terrible and trying to sort of inject himself into a sort of perverted love triangle um, in Waxworks. But yeah, I suppose, you know, we could, we could sort of start by talking about Waxworks. And I, I had a very fun experience watching this film. It's been a long time since I've popped on a German expression film and I took my cue from Marsh in a very brilliant move on his part where you know when we popped on the film we realized it had sort of a recycled you know piano score on top of it which is always a bit of a bummer and I actually think a huge roadblock in terms of people sort of like jumping in and appreciating silent film is often the kind of canned you know pathetic musical accompaniment that's usually tossed from stock audio onto like a DVD or a streaming file so I muted muted that and I popped on uh, I popped on sleep I listened mm-hmm. to some nice you know drone heavy metal playing <laughs> over waxworks and it accompanied the images very beautifully and there were it's one of those things that I think is I've done it a few times in the past and it's it's really fun because silent cinema very much moves rhythmically and very much like music and it has a similar pace as a lot of you know heavier stuff and there are so many incredible moments no matter what you sort of toss on it it feels like it syncs up perfectly your brain is searching for those linkages um, and they seem to just appear every every time you turn a corner in a silent film and that happened to me a lot during during waxworks yeah I should I should say um, and I think it's a good point that not all silent film soundtracks are are made equal and nor are they one and the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you go on YouTube and, and silent film is pretty accessible. I mean, you, you can go to YouTube. We were talking about this earlier and, and find so many films because they're just no longer under copyright. No one really holds a, a particular distribution right to, to a lot of these films. So they just get uploaded by all different kinds of people in all different kinds of versions with all different kinds of soundtracks on them. So I actually went on YouTube and there's like five six different versions of Waxworks up there and I actually bopped around until I found one with a soundtrack that I liked and so I did watch one with a you know original orchestral score that was um that was quite good quite good but it it is a great point and it's like as soon as Marsh came over and told me that that you know he put on some heavy metal with Waxworks I was like god damn it I should have fucking put some on too because <laughs> My first experience with Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was getting absolutely fucking blazed, smoking a bong with my buddy and putting on Radiohead's Kid A uh, <laughs> for Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And, and in the same way, you know, yeah. maybe it's part Every of the, cut was hitting on the beat. You dude, know? Yeah, and again, it's like you sit there and you're just like, man, it matches up perfectly. And then you go, you're super fucking stoned. You're like, I wonder if, if Tom York was watching Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And it's like, no, he wasn't. But like also... <laughs> The really funny thing about listening to Kid A with Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is I would I would swear to people afterwards, watch Caligari and listen to Radiohead Kid A, sync them up, they match up perfectly. And I did that later on in my life, and I realized uh, this time I wasn't blazed out of my mind. Kid A 
the album ends and then there's like 20 more minutes of Caligari. <laughs> so, so, Nailed it. Yeah, so we were so stoned that at a certain point we were just sitting in total silence watching uh, Dr. Caligari kind of climax. The way it was meant to be. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. So I, I think that that part of added to my, my very uncanny kind of experience with it. But yeah, I think for anybody, you know, uh, that that might struggle to get into to silent film, like that's a fun thing that even creates new sort of experiences, you know, experiences mm-hmm. that are even, I'm sure for the filmmakers, totally unintentional, but that you get to create now these new kind of, you know, uh, savage couplings and beautiful collisions on your own. Yeah, someone on Twitter suggested that Slayer be be played over Buster Keaton's The General, and so mm. I immediately went to the YouTube doubler and and hooked up Rain and Blood to the middle of The General. Oh fuck! And yeah. I just sat there watching it for twenty minutes because it shredded so fucking hard, and everything was like sinking, everything was hitting. There was a part where Keaton fires the cannonball off the train like right on a huge like beat Uh, and then they're like guitar soloing it was insane that's awesome so do this at home folks yeah Yeah, it really does make the films feel alive in a unique way that you can't really apply to other types of cinema and really just about anything is well, I guess I would say just about anything is better than nothing. I was joking with with Marsh beforehand. I've actually sat through two silent film screenings accompanied by nothing. <laughs> Both at Doc Films, I was stuck watching. I, well, not stuck. I could have left uh, off my own free will, of course. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but I, I, I caught a screening of The Last Command also with Emil Yannings, uh, completely silent, just the sound of like one other man uh, rustling a bag of chips throughout the duration. <laughs> Not the best soundtrack. I'd recommend uh, some other music over that. And then I also saw John Ford's Straight Shooting, a projection of that. And not only was there no music, it had Czech intertitles. Um, oh my God. But let it be said, you know, the universal language, the images still spoke to me to an extent. And I can remember both of those films, uh, especially moments of them quite vividly. But it is... It, it's a fun way of approaching silent films now that is, you know, it's such an easy thing to do. Just, you know, connect some headphones to some music or just like, yeah, have two windows open and having it play that way. And it should be pointed out, right? Because you've already kind of opened this bag a little bit here, you know, in this discussion of like, what is a silent film uh, that when I, in my like history class, like lecture on silent cinema and the arrival of sound, I refer to the the myth of silent cinema, you know, and I, I say that cinema was always in one form or another clutching at some kind of sound. And one of the things that, you know, they would do, I mean, there's all kinds of things that they would do. They'd have a, a narrator stand next to the screen in some cases and, and talk to the audience and tell them like what's going on, who's who and what's happening. But, you know, film uh, makers and early distributors would, would even just to, to theaters, give them suggestions about, you know, the kind of music that they could have as a, as a live accompaniment, right? That you could have an orchestra, you could have somebody in your theater playing music or playing it on a very old phonograph or something. You know, they would give Mm -hmm. them like cue sheets and suggestions about, you know, at this point in the film, we recommend maybe something like this, you know? So, so I think there, there was even that back then that, that, you know, people being like, well, you know, 
Mozart really goes well with this or, or whatever. We found this bit of music works well with that. A piano, you know, you had all kinds of, of attempts. And then as, as Marsh's film illustrates, you, you did have some very, even before sync sound, some very crude attempts at, you know, having um, some kind of, you know, dialogue and sound effects, you know, things that, that could be in there to give it presence. So I think even before, you know, what, what some considered like the canonical arrival of sound, you did have a lot of different attempts and experimentations almost from the days of Melier even to, to bring sound, to add sound, to add that kind of sonic texture mm-hmm. to films. Because I think people really did realize like us early on that just sitting in pure silence uh there's got to be a better way <laughs> there's yeah. gotta be more. i mean look <laughs> sitting in pure silence was invented by guys in the 60s you know <laughs> that's when that was invented right but normal people going all the way back they want some sound with their image yeah. you know mm-hmm. yeah they don't want to just hear some guy munching on doritos and licking his fingers yeah old-timey doritos yeah or whatever they'd munch on back then <laughs> Somebody just eating a raw chicken or something. I don't know. People crazy back then. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I I think it is an interesting thing to to look at these two films, which are sort of just straddling that era, you know, with Waxworks being from, you know, near the peak of, of silent cinema and, you know, Ganga Bruta being this film made six years, roughly five, six years after after uh, Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer and The Lights of New York, you know, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. so. And films that have different aesthetic approaches to their expressive images, right? You know, where while there's sort of a natural beauty to many of the images in Ganga Bruto with the natural the natural light, and it's, it's like a very sunny, soft-looking film. Here, when we start in Waxworks, it's right away. It's blue. It's tinted. We've got f- images layered on top of each other. Everything is spinning. You know, it's the chaos of a silent film carnival. We've got the Ferris wheel going around. We've got the merry-go-round layered on top of that. Um, and it's like, here we are, we're in German expressionism, you know, things, everything is, is yelling at you. The image itself is yelling at you in that opening sequence. The image is so hard to compared to, you know, Ganga Bruta, which is so soft, you know, mm-hmm. it really is. These two films are a study in hard and soft lighting, you know, above all else, like, cause they're both kind of taken to extremes, right. Uh, in both of the films. So they go hard in like totally different directions because we've got waxworks the the totally sealed off you know ufa universe we're in here we're designing every shot oh yeah and you know speaking of universal languages as william Dieterle, the poet sort of struts into the film at the beginning uh, kyle was walking by and she said Who's that? <laughs> and I think we can all agree. William Dieterle, young Dieterle, looking like a snack in 1924. Much more so than uh, Emil Jannings, who is an, an absolute <laughs> unit just sort of puttering around this film. Uh, oh, does man. not have the same um, uh, fiery draw that Dieterle does. Well, I, I, again, though, you know, each of the, the principles in in waxworks has such a a specific look you know a very specific 
archetype and and it would follow them throughout their their careers. I mean, yes, Yannings is in there uh, in 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 even larger and more bulbous kind of prosthetic uh, suit that he's wearing. I mean, he is uh, like a beach ball with a with a turban on as the as the Khalifa Baghdad. Yes, he is uh, he is large. He is rotund. And then you have, of course, Conrad Fight, who is a, a total contrast. And again, this is all, all vertical. All vertical. And this is this is in the design, you know. This is this is such an expressionist approach to casting. Uh, you know. Yeah, give me the wide man, give me the tall man. Right. And then <laughs> and then Werner Krauss as as Jack the Ripper, and Krauss has just these incredible bug eyes, you know, these like bulging eyes that that were so so much a, a part of his presence, you know, whether as Caligari or here in a very brief bit of screen time. Uh, but it's, it is very remarkable when you when you see that face and, and you see those eyes. I, I think, again, you know, it's it is such a, a hallmark of the German expressionist movement because Lenny, like a lot of the other uh, expressionist filmmakers, also, you know, studied painting and he began as a designer and, and was specifically like working in that mode, you know, very much thinking like, you know, so many others in the expressionist movement, not in realism at all, right? But but in uh, extremities, in, in extremes, in contrast, as we pointed out. And the the spaces of so many expressionist movies get get certainly you know talked about you know the the town in Caligari which you know the it's like this the beginning film, of this movie right this film yeah. Lenny Lenny said you know that that Caligari was a huge inspiration for him I mean it was a, a very important film for I think a lot of German directors and certainly those in the expressionist movement but I, I think something that often gets overlooked is bodies as space and you see that very well in in the expressionist movement you also see it i mean this was something eisenstein talked about eisenstein talked a lot about types you know like casting for a type you know something that was meant to be a um a sort of figure or icon more than it was a a human that's the universal language baby i can stay that all this whole episode yeah um but you're i mean i thinking on those terms yeah, like I think both films, you know, kind of are resistant to what we, I guess, could call, you know, the conventional narrative style, right? Like in Waxworks, mm-hmm. especially, it struck me as a, yes, a very designed film, but it's like a presentation, you know? That's yeah. like, it's a conceptual presentation much more than it's a narrative, right? And it reminded me of like Haxon, you know? Like that sort of like, check out this fucked up shit. Uh, and then that's it, you know? Like the poet. Yeah, he sits there and writes, and it does kind of become personal in the end, but it's not really a story. They're, they're not really real characters that we're necessarily invested in. Mm-mm. And I think, you know, in Ganga Bruta as well, I think narrative is very slippery uh, in that movie. Yeah. So it is interesting to, yes, to see again these two diverging styles and both kind of resistant to the driving Hollywood narrative style. Certainly, certainly. I actually think that's one of the most ironic things about waxwork and how the movie works because it, the actual plot itself is about bringing life 
to these various wax figures by giving them a story and giving them depth. But in reality, the act of watching the film feels like touring a wax museum, uh, albeit one that's full of movement and expression. But as you're saying, without that emotional weight to sort of latch yourself onto, it does feel as if it is a presentation. You're wandering these halls, looking at wax figures and looking at all of these intricately designed spaces that don't feel as if they're grounded in any sort of reality that you can make sense of? Well, I lecture to my students. I, I hope this isn't going to just be me like re redoing like my, my history course, <laughs> German expressionist lecture. But, but I mean, when I talk about the German expressionist movement, I talk about, uh, I always start with World War One as this sort of like, um, as this, as this starting point, right? For, for so much of, of what you see built by the German expressionist filmmakers and and in these films and and their approaches to to that and and I I detail the horrors of things like the Battle of Verdun you know nine months nine hundred thousand casualties flamethrowers gas where people's lungs are are you know liquefying inside their chests and and just living in filth and corpses and shit and blood and and mud for for months and and landscapes turned into the the most charred twisted gnarled unimaginable nightmares you know they they there was nothing that seemed organic anymore uh, and so i think that that's that's so central especially when you realize that so many of the the filmmakers of this era were veterans of the First World War. Lang was a veteran of the First World War. Murnau was a veteran of the First World War. So many of them were, you know, going through something like that. What would that do to your mind? And what would that do to your idea of the the so-called objective real? Mm -hmm. Because the landscapes of the First World War were spaces that were set apart from, quote, the civilized world, you know? World War wasn't wasn't like World War II, where the cities were all being leveled and bombarded, you know? Like, this nightmarish landscape was, was removed from the cities, removed from everyday life. And so I think that contrast is so important as well for the people who experience that, you know? To say, like, you think this, this city we're in, you think this is reality this is the real world i've seen an entirely different reality that is that is horrifying and and everything in that world is trying to swallow you up in the most terrifying ways imaginable mm -hmm. and i think that is that is key to really unlocking their their approaches to graphic expressionism of these these you know these spaces that are uh, otherworldly in, yeah. in a sense right and i think too like uh, you know, after World War One, right, you just have the sort of general instability of Weimar and the chaos surrounding that. And of course, I had to pop open Krakauer and, and look up his entry on this in From Caligari to Hitler. And he talks about Waxworks as kind of the last true expressionist film coming in 1924 before films started to be more like, you know, Pabst, more like street films, more realistic Der stuff. Spiel. Yeah, but he says that, you know, Waxworks belongs to his chapter called Procession of Tyrants, right? That starts with Mabuza and goes through Nosferatu and some other films and sort of concludes here as Weimar's sort of stabilizing, you get the last, you know, not just one tyrant, 
but three tyrants all in one, right? And and so he connects it, yeah, he says, waxworks marked the end of that period in which the harassed German mind retreated into a shell. Hmm. And thinking about, yes, retreating into the waxworks, into this fantastical or fictional space, and then, yes, on top of that, we get vignettes of these terrifying, horrifying guys. And it was interesting to me watching it going, yeah, I wonder like, you know, on on what lens are we viewing these tyrants? Are these tyrants supposed to be like the German aristocracy that, that led them to war? Or is it like the fear of Bolshevism in the case maybe of Ivan the Terrible, right? Uh, in this period. So it was interesting to kind of like try and suss that out, but I was really just lost in in the world, in the design, listening to Sleep's Jerusalem really loud, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's so much to to get lost in in, in the waxworks uh, in just simply looking at, yeah, the production design, but then also the actors, their faces, their their the way they carry themselves, and, and you do sometimes sort of forget that there's an attempt at a story being told. <laughs> but I would say, you know, I, I think it's it's important to point out on that subject that I, I actually don't think the the subject of the first one, the the caliph, is all that terrible uh, compared to certainly wow. Ivan yes. <laughs> the terrible. But yeah, uh, the film escalates rather quickly, right? The first does. the first vignette Although, you know, the caliph is shown to be a man who will, you know, order someone's head cut off at the the smallest of slights or perceived slights or because he wants to have sex with your wife or because you're baking bread with too much smoke, you know? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like, obviously he's cruel and ridiculous in that sort of fictional world leader from the past or whatever. But, like, yeah, compared to the next two sections, this is like a nice little, like, appetizer, a little. A little sweet treat. Yeah, the Caliph yeah. is is more of a, a buffoon. It's yeah. it's more of a comedic section. There's a lot of humor to be found, a very macabre humor, of course, in expressionism. And again, I think that's also this this reaction to the ideas of 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 an, a type of existential dread that that could hollow you out inside. That if you can't find things to laugh at in a cruel world, you know, if if you're living in Germany in 1920 and you can't laugh at the fact that to buy a beer you need you know 20 million marks or whatever it is due to inflation, like if you can't laugh at a suitcase full of cash to buy a fucking pretzel, you are gonna go mad. You are gonna be totally consumed, you know? I mean, they were smoking dried radishes wrapped in newspaper we're talking about here, Which right? is what I smoke during every Gauntlet episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much. And look at us, we're laughing, you know? We haven't yeah. lost our minds yet, right? I think one of the reasons you could read it that the first sequence is so light and less intense than certainly Ivan the Terrible's sequence of the film, is partially because the poet himself is a bit more relaxed and also just rather horny when he arrives um, at the, at the waxwork right. zone. You know, he, he's sitting down and he's looking at the, um, the what would you call him, the waxwork keeper? 
yeah. the proprietor. Yeah. The proprietor. He's looking at the proprietor's daughter with um, some very thirsty eyes. And I mean, by the time he sits down to write, he's he's licking his lips. You know, he he's a spark has been lit in him, and he's you know he's ready to imagine this tale where he himself is the baker and the proprietor's daughter is the baker's wife. He's already envisioning this world where he has a relationship with her, but it's threatened by the Emilianings coming in. Um, and it, you know, Emilianings is, he's certainly mugging, you know, throughout all of his sequences. And I mean, I, you gotta, doesn't surprise me at all that a Nazi like him would uh, gleefully embrace putting on brown face and frolicking around the the screen. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's, he's having a blast. He's got this like crazy mustache glued to his face and and when they introduce him it is in this incredible overhead shot as he's playing chess with the grand vizier and he is just like surrounded you know by all these like guys you know like in this like little circle around him but he is taking up so much space in the frame with his like flowing clothes and just the it's like a fat suit on top of a fat guy it's crazy (laughs) and he's just like lying down and i was like holy shit like i got vertigo from that shot and just like his size yeah yeah looking down at something so heavy is like yeah it does instill a bit of vertigo in your blood yeah again it's his expressionism is a cinema of extremes in 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 just about every uh dimension possible and yeah another thing is is just also then the the design around him because his his palace everything is sort of soft and and bulbous and round you know all the spaces look uh in the words of lata eisner like baked bread you know Uh, all the elements that are in here uh, become extremely intensified to whatever end you would have to to describe it. You know, it's it's everything is of the caliph. It's it's large. It's round. It's 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 squishy. It's big. You know? <laughs> yeah, he is very much like a yeah like a roaring twenties uh, sort of guy here, right? Because like they introduce him with the inner title where it's like. Above all, you know, it's like, oh, he was very mischievous. And above all, he hated monotony. So he had a different wife for every day in the year. (laughs) That was something I was thinking about, too. A guy who's got a different wife for every day of the year. You wouldn't think he would be so fat. I mean, I guess the fact that he's he's got a different wife, like he could just sit there and not really engage in the sexual act. But otherwise, you'd think like this guy's fucking every single day, probably multiple times a day. You'd think he'd be a bit more spry than he is. But um, no, he's. He's bulbous. He's huge. Yeah, he is. He is. And yeah, uh, the the first story sort of turns on, as Marsh mentioned, this this chess game where uh, he loses, and he's looking for a reason to sort of blame his loss, and so he does on the the smoke from the bakery next door, and <laughs> and asks this grand vizier to go murder the fucking baker. <laughs> you know, Got to be an excuse for it, right? It was funny. I felt like I had a premonition of shit really going down when he when there was checkmate because that was the first time the vocals kicked in for Sleeps Jerusalem that I was listening to as well while watching this, um, and that felt very sinister hearing that deep bass voice uh, with a moment of checkmate. I thought, oh, that yep, the the baker's in trouble. <laughs> right. But then there's, you know, the, after the baker sort of gets cucked, you know, because the Grand Vizier goes over there and and his wife uh, is is quite impressed with the the what she sees as the chivalry and the 
the you know the the regality I guess you could say of of Le Grand Vizier and she sees her husband as just this sort of like nincompoop or whatever. Yeah. So Assad, the the poet as the baker, uh, has to figure out a way to sort of win her back. Yeah. Prove he's a man. To prove he's a man, and this this actually triggers the really amazing sequence of him. You know, his plan that he hatches is uh, to to break in to the caliph's palace because he knows the word around town is that the caliph has a wishing ring and uh, this this ring will grant any wish to the person who who wears it or, or spins it around or something like that. So his plan is to go in there and, and get the ring and, and, and set it straight. And then we get this like incredible kind of like heist sequence yes. uh, through again, these, these the sort of like impossible architecture of this expressionist space uh, where, you know, there isn't a, a straight line to be found yeah. and <laughs> stairwells seem to lead nowhere. And the uh, film goes like full Escher uh, in his yeah. escape. There's like one particular shot where I was like, there's no way that has depth, you know? And all of a sudden <laughs> the guy's running up these stairs through what looked like a flat wall that looked like stairs, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like, yeah. And there are people coming from like every certain possible yeah, angles, impossible angles, every plane you can imagine in this space. And, and yeah, he goes like full Prince of Persia and does yes. a bit of like parkour <laughs> through this you know, Escher-esque nightmare space that looks like baked bread. Yeah. He jumps off the bulbous tower onto a palm tree with a little jump cut in there to, yeah. you know, yeah. to seal the A palm the tree that looks like paper, too. I love yes. the way the trees looked. They look mm-hmm. like, yeah, you could just blow them over. They're like wax paper almost. Yeah. That's an unbelievable sequence. Like, the, the tunnels he's going through, and there's even, like, a kaleidoscope shot reflecting from the wishing ring. And so he... You know, when he goes in there, he he finds, you know, he goes in the bedroom of the Caliph, and he hacks off his arm. Oh, yeah. Very violently. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's very weird because the Caliph doesn't move, you know, and it makes you wonder what's going on <laughs> here. And, well, we actually know what's going on here because intercut with the daring heist is the Caliph moving in on Assad's wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the, the Caliph uh, decides, as he says is his custom, uh, you know, to his, his, like, his court, he explains, you know, it's time for me to go mingle with the people, as you know I like to do. <laughs> and, and again, this is like the buffoonery of it all. Like, we know exactly where he's going, you know, but he's playing it off as if uh, he's just going to go wander around and get in touch with the people, and he heads straight over to the baker's wife, you know. He- does he slithers in like Jabba the Hutt and he's just you get these extreme close-ups of him like licking his fingers as he's enjoying the different baker's treats that are available in her home <laughs> yeah. and he's just twiddling all his beads it felt like in every subsequent shot he had like a new string of beads around his neck like I couldn't <laughs> believe how many they were able to fit over his body <laughs> yeah I mean that that'd be pretty tight if they actually did that 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 would be fucking awesome if like they just kept being like Another shot, put another fucking string of beads yeah. on him. Like that would rock, man. But there's another great line. So, you know, when when you know, we've we've told you about like the heist that's going on, right? There's this heist that's happening, and then so the husband, he's returning with the arm and and the wishing ring. And the line I wrote it down was amazing. Uh the the caliph says to the baker's wife, 
my pond lily, have you a hiding place for a fat man? Yeah. <laughs> and he is so fat and huge. And, and they stuff, he like, he like stuffs himself into like the chimney. The right? oven. Yeah. yeah. The oven. Yeah. He climbs into the oven, you know? And that's again, like an impossible German expressionist trick, you know? Like yeah. how do you disappear Emil Janings into an oven, you know? <laughs> yeah. But- I, yeah. I would have loved to have watched him get like sucked into that as if it was like some change in cabin pressure, like Goldfinger and Bond when he gets sucked out the window of the plane <laughs> to see Emil Yannings get sucked Bond into alert. that oven. Yeah. yeah, that was an accident. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Emil Yannings has a really funny line earlier, too, where he mentions his, like, he's, like, salacious and sort of, you know, again, licking his lips, looking at the baker's wife, and he mm. mentions, your lack of clothes doesn't disturb me in the least. As she's talking about, like, she's got nothing to wear, nowhere to go, you know? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's awesome. Like, I was cracking up. Bobo. Bobo. Bobo, it's all good, dude. We're just talking about German expressionism. Yeah. And I like, too, he keeps, like, sort of peeking out, and he's just got, like, soot all over his, like, little... His little nose and his fat face, you know, but... I thought the the twist at the end was going to be that he got baked, that he himself turned into bread. Yes. That's not the direction it goes in. <laughs> I did exactly think that myself, uh, but in, in actuality, what happens is uh, the Caliph explains... That whenever he goes out on his little jaunts, his little nightly jaunts to, to you know, get in touch with the people, uh, he leaves a wax figure of himself. Like a postmodern flourish, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's getting very metatextual already, right? And yeah, he leaves a wax version of himself. And uh, that is the the thing that Assad attacked. So Assad has a, has a wax arm. And of course, also a, a fake wishing ring. But when the Grand Vizier and his men show up uh, to, to find out what happened to the Caliph and and capture Assad after his his bold heist slash murder of the Caliph, uh, the wife does some quick thinking and uses what they assume to be the real wishing ring to suddenly wish that the Caliph was alive and well and with them and... Uh, Following that, he climbs out of the, <laughs> the impossible space of the oven, reveals with, like, himself. all over his face. Yeah. <laughs> and then, with another extra bit of quick thinking on the baker's wife, uh, on her part, she she also wishes that the the husband would be made the official court baker. That's right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so it is, you know, it is an all's well that ends well. He gets promoted, you know, and... Uh, yeah. Everyone's happy in the end, except for all the guards who are very confused. Yeah. As you already pointed out, Ryan, uh, as the film progresses, the stories do get darker and more twisted. And this brings us to the Ivan, the terrible sequence, which is, again, uh, in, in almost every respect, a contrast, a total contrast to the tale of the Caliph. Um, in Gone are the, the sort of like, plush bulbous spaces you know instead of round spaces now everything is 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 more angular and narrow and tight and claustrophobic uh and uh conrad fight immediately makes his present felt 
walking through the halls of his, of, you know, the Kremlin stooped over, hunched over. You know, again, Lenny talked about some of his design choices. And in the case of the Ivan the Terrible sequences, one of the things uh, he, he wanted to do was was make all the door frames very low so that when anyone enters a door, they have to like completely double over. And it, it adds this, again, this really unsettling quality to the movements, especially Ivan. He's, he's like constantly unfurling, uncoiling himself like some, some, some yeah, mythical snake, dragon, beast-like figure. He looks like a figure out of gothic art in a way, especially as he's inhabiting his little laboratory where he's working with his personal poison mixer as he's like surrounded by beakers and there's smoke and mist everywhere. And uh, they use these hourglasses to determine the, the final moments of, of a prisoner. And Ivan, in one of his, you know, sadistic flourishes, he likes to have his prisoners, like, watch the sands of the hourglass run out as their life is reaching its violent and you know they're violent abrupt and it clearly gets him off too i mean when he's looking at that sand initially in the front half of his own vignette i mean he it, it almost feels erotic in a way you know he's getting thrilled at the idea of putting people through this and he looks at the sand and he's thinking about his power and he becomes completely drunk on it this sequence immediately is just like the most black metal fucking thing ever oh, it's yeah. like it's insane I really liked this this sequence, and I was like really vibing with its deliberate pace and its dread and fight. Uh, just just being, you know, a total paranoid maniac. I mean, it's yeah, it, yeah. It's it's an incredible it's an incredible performance, and I, I did want to also like bring up, you know, Ryan. Maybe you can confirm this, but like, there's a room. In a space like in the film that's sort of like related to the torture chamber. I think it's like the room they go to like down to the torture chamber and it's got like this teapot, like this huge steam pot thing in it, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That shit is like David Lynch Twin Peaks season three. It looks like a, f- a fucking David Lynch painting or whatever. Like that it's all like charcoal, does. like it's all black. Yeah. Uh, and there's like steam. Oh my god! Yeah, and because the wall has this really bizarre texture, as if there's like veins yes. uh, making their way underneath the just the the, the paint of the drywall. Um, I was thinking of that too. I was thinking specifically of the just like that that zone in the middle of of season three of Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's just like really really cursed looking shit. Like <laughs> really really unsettling. It looks like the den of a poison mixer. <laughs> <laughs> God damn. Yeah. It looks like the walls themselves are reacting to the fumes of the poison. Yeah. Well, you know, Deleuze tells us of of expressionism is that space is constructed, not described, right? And in this mm-hmm. case, the the deliberate construction of all these spaces to be embodied with some kind of life. Or death. Yes, or death, right? Yeah, I mean, both, right? Life and death together, locked in this eternal struggle. Yeah, this sequence really does feel so remarkable, especially when you compare it to the obvious counterpart, which is the Ivan the Terrible films that 
Eisenstein did and how this one does truly feel like death metal comparatively. It, it shows you pretty explicitly right there uh, how radically different the approach to form at the time was between those two filmmakers. And yet, in, in spite of that, uh, Eisenstein himself was on record by saying that this was a big inspiration to him, that mm. he really liked this film and uh, he, he tried in his own way to, to put his own obvious spin on it. But but yeah, he used this as a as an inspiration for his Ivan the Ivan the Terrible films. They do still share a lot of images, without a doubt. It is a depraved spectacle, though, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, 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 it's incredible, because you brought up Conrad Fight Marsh, that he's able to get so much across with really just his eyes. I mean, most of his performance is coming from the way his eyes are just darting around the room. You know, he sees a murderer behind every corner. He sees a, a plot in his in his uh, soup, you know. And speaking of plot, uh, this one is, you know, on that uh, subject of being the, the poisoner to the czar. What kind of job is that? Well, uh, what happens when the poisoner is to be poisoned as <laughs> determined by uh you know Ivan himself and so that kicks into gear a, a series of motions but ultimately you know this sequence is about Ivan tearing it up at a wedding <laughs> and that's really what happens as a nobleman comes to him and and uh you know on hands and knees uh, for for something or other you know to come, remind come, him yeah, right to remind him come to my daughter's wedding it's today you've been down in the torture chamber uh you know for weeks and immediately ivan uh, is is ready to just fuck shit up in a in a totally destructive way as he uh, switches hats with the nobleman as they uh, like make their sleigh ride to the wedding. Yeah, he like slams his crown on top of that guy's oh, head. Oh yeah, rules. he's like, you play, you play the czar. I'll play the driver. It'll be fun. Yeah, he and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> he's like having a manic episode, and and as they're they're riding to the wedding. All of the sudden, it cuts to a bunch of guys with arrows, you know, <laughs> trying to assassinate the czar yeah. on the sleigh ride. Yeah, and in like classic silent film uh, mode, it just there's a title card that suddenly just says "assassins." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's truly paranoid. Yeah, and and of course. Uh, they shoot who they think is the czar. Yeah, they're aiming for the czar. They're aiming for the crown, you know? And so the czar shows up to this wedding with the father of the bride dead from an arrow. Uh, and everyone is is very shocked by this and very stricken with grief. And he insists that the party go on. Oh, yeah. He's ready to, he's ready to cut a rug. Yeah. The shot of him pulling up in that sleigh you know, and and just in the back seat is is the dead father of the bride with an arrow sticking out of his <laughs> chest, and he doesn't even you know. There's no ceremony to that. You know, he's not like he died so that I may live. He just leaves him in the sled and walks into the wedding. It's, it's another thing both these films have in common: a rather lousy, albeit beautiful, weddings. Yeah, some poisonous love. He rolls into the party, and everyone, of course, is. Is very sad about the, <laughs> the 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 untimely death of the, the bride's father, and and Ivan declares like no more weeping, drink, dance, 
and people sort of reluctantly <laughs> do so. I'd be pretty intimidated if Ivan the Terrible like demanded that I have a good time. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty uncomfortable and of course gets even more so because he kidnaps the bride and groom once again played by William Dieterle uh, and uh, the the daughter of the waxworks. Yeah. Cucked again. Yep. Replaying the same <laughs> scenario here, and and then you know the rest of the film is is back in the lair, back in the dungeon as uh, Ivan is you know torturing William, poor William Dieterle, mm. and making all kinds of aggressive moves on the bride, who uh, at one point whips him, and he likes that, so Ooh. he kind of like temporarily lets her go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that was a, that was an interesting part. Yeah, the poet, you know, he's kind of he's got a formula and he's kind of sticking to it you know he's got his his he's got his things that he he really likes to lean on in his storytelling including you know a nice good ironic twist sort of ending as well that's right right. so this sequence sort of wraps up more or less with the previously sentenced poison maker poison mixer who has written the czar's name on an hourglass you know, and it's it's implied and they, they sort of trick him that that he's been poisoned by the poison mixer. And as soon as the hourglass runs out, Ivan's going to die. And they say that he spends the rest of his days desperately flipping over the hourglass to try to give himself <laughs> more time. And again, it's this like incredible shot of like fight and his eyes are wide and they're darting everywhere and he's stroking the hourglass. And Not to be an old fogey, but like the close-ups in this film are given such you know, oomph and attention, right? And just, like, how fucking cool and, like, close up you are to this, like, insane guy losing his mind, you know, so close to the camera, right? Like, you know... They, they, they knew how to use a close-up back then. It had mean, it, it, had, it had meaning, you know, uh, in a different way than it does now. The affect image par excellence. There you go. Deleuze might say. but There's also like an accidental power that comes from the way silent films have survived and look now, just the actual quality of the film, both the original way that the light was captured on the older cameras um, onto the film stock, but also just the battered prints and the way a face emerges through the edges of this frame that usually are like softer or battered or kind of have this smeared look from the tinting. There is something spectral about the way a close-up looks in a silent film that I think resonates really strongly with me as a viewer, for mm-hmm. sure. There is a, a, a different texture mm-hmm. to the images. And it was funny when we reached the end of the Ivan chapter and I had looked on my TV to see how much was left and I saw that there were only about seven or eight minutes left and I almost thought there was something wrong with the way I was streaming it as if I was perhaps playing it back in an incorrect frame rate because I know it was like a film at 18 frames per second and I thought surely the Jack the Ripper sequence is going to be much longer than uh, a brief eight minutes but that's not the case and I think I read that the film they just ran out of money eventually and there was even plans to have a fourth wax figure receive their own story told in some greater detail and 
it does kind of feel that way. It's a nice little epilogue having the Jack the Ripper sequence, and it does almost hit harder because of how brief it is. It seems like a film introduced to you when you start as if it's going to be three equal parts um, mm-hmm. detailing these stories, but it really is like two sizable meaty chunks and then um, a little, you know, a little snake bite at the end of the film. Yeah, I think like one is like 40 minutes, the other one's like 35, 36 minutes. And then, yeah, the technically like the Jack the Ripper sequence is like six minutes. But you're right, Ryan, like they did. They they ran out of money and it was meant to be a much bigger film and a much longer film. And they did have a whole fourth character that you can see in the waxwork. Mm-hmm. This five minutes of full-blown expressionist nightmare (laughs) superimposition expressionist nightmare Um, and it it is a striking sequence it's incredible it really floored me beyond any expectations I had going like oh this is gonna this movie's gonna look amazing and then this sequence happens right so we should set up that William Dieterle the poet uh, he's written these two tales and now he's sleepy and uh, he falls asleep at his desk So what we're now seeing is not his fiction, like the last two sequences, but a dream. And in this dream, him, as him, and the proprietor's daughter are stalked through a phantasmagorical cityscape by Jack the Ripper, and they're going through the carnival and the Ferris wheel, and it's now just like a haunted specter, Mm -hmm. right? They look like ghosts because there's transparency in their bodies. It's as if they're superimposed over the images. Everything just starts like collapsing in on itself during the sequence. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, because uh, Krakauer exists, I'm just going to tell you what he said about this sequence, (laughs) right? It brings, you know, this examination of tyranny to the present, right? Going, this is now. The specter, the streets, the paranoia, the present, right? And that's sort of like what's going on. We've seen these two historical scenes, and now we're seeing that these ghosts, these specters, persist to the present day. Uh, And Krakauer says that this sequence is like the highest achievement of film art. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Or one of them. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, at the time. It is, yeah. in a in a sense, like a, a microcosm for, I think, you know, when people think of German expressionist cinema, it is like, you know, this is like a, a, a like a, a an ultra condensed version of it all. It's it's all there. Yeah. The the chiaroscuro lighting, the the superimpositions, the the madness, the paranoia, the impossible architecture, the angles. Uh, it, it's it's all there. And yes, like just some bug eyed killer with a knife walking through the streets. So it is also the film is a journey inward right and and we keep going further and further inward the paranoia is building in each of these sequences you know at first it's kind of like light-hearted and then in Ivan it really starts to consume and then by that final sequence it has driven the author to his own madness you know like he has himself now also become a paranoid maniac the the you know and so the other film we talk about does deal with paranoia however in a very indirect and different way especially in terms of the opening images and the way they all connect to each other Um, I was really startled when the film began and it was another wedding however all of the images we were seeing 
it was a series of details. It was not these large tableaus, these expressive images. Instead, we were following eyes. We were following the ring on someone's finger. We were looking at their feet. We were looking at different objects in the room. And then the camera pans over to a statue, which we get a very expressive face in the statue, but it dissolves into the face of a real man who's sort of sitting around in, in a dining room after a, a large party, and he even mentions to to the butler in the room, oh, let's drink. There, there will be no more orgies in this house. You know, think, <laughs> things are on track to, to, to being a respectable life now that we've had the revelry of this of this wedding in, in our lives as, as time has gone on. Yeah, it's very elegiac. It is, it is. <laughs> but it's interrupted by a scream. And that's, again, we return upstairs and we get these small details. We see the gun on the floor next to a body of a woman and the camera pans up. And instead of, a love, you know, the nice like ring secure on someone's finger, he's got it pulled off of his finger a little bit and he's twiddling it in his hand. And you know something has gone wrong in this bond. And that's an introduction to our protagonist and his paranoia and his fear and his own psychosis. Because we later learn he killed her in a moment of passion because he realized she was not a virgin and i gotta say it's a bold move to sort of sell your film right we're, we're following this man who learning that uh, his wife has had her own sexual life before him uh, he kills her in a moment of passion um it's bold and i actually think that I read some things about this film that where they struggle with that quality of it. However, I think that it's sort of built into the film that we have this sort of grotesque monster um, kind of leading the way. The, the son who's immediately acquitted of his horrible crime because his father is an urbanite, an industrialist. Like, he's someone who's untouchable. He can get away with these horrible deeds. But I think a film that foregrounds that element, the fact that if you have these connections that you can get away with this type of behavior, it, it I think it's built into the film's overall look at industry and people of power farting around like this, the men of the world. A hundred percent, dude, because again, not, you know, not to just compare this film to Sunrise, but I'm going to compare this film to Sunrise because <laughs> this film ultimately has the same plot. It's about a man who does a bad, 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 bad thing and then is maybe redeemed by love, right? And I think that's that's totally what's happening here, right? Well, yeah, I mean, again, I think comparing uh, the two films and obviously a film made in a, in a totally different country in a slightly different period uh, under different circumstances, it does share some thematic concerns that you would find in an expressionism. You know, the, the contrasts between light and dark are also not just about the environment, but about the individual the in soul. that. Right, you know, again, the, the light and the dark are right there, and the humans are the ones just dangling precariously on, on, on that fence, you know, and, and which side they tip over towards, like, 
that's the journey, that's the film, that's the experience. And and often people can tip into one side and then tip back to the other. They sort of sway back and forth. Again, that that the humans are the, the fulcrum point between light and darkness. You know, part of films from way back when is they didn't look at character representation in the same way people do now, right? These mm-hmm. are archetypes. These are more fables. These are kind of mythic characters, right? Like yeah, the murderous is... husband. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, like this movie, it 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 took me a while to sort of get on its on its wavelength, but it it really veers into like mythopoetic territory. I mean, I also did laugh at this guy because you know after this event, <laughs> triggering his you know I guess the the rest of the film, you know he's sitting in this in this mansion and then he he says something like. You know, I really got to get out of here, man. Everything, everything in here just reminds me of my tragedy. <laughs> he refers <Yep>. to <laughs> murdering his wife on his wedding night as my tragedy of his, as if it's something that happened to him. Yep. Like, I was like, all right, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, because he he clearly doesn't think he did anything right. wrong. Yeah, there's this incredible shot of this like ornately carved gargoyle or satyr like figure that then. Uh, in like an incredible match cut takes us into the face of this other character that looks incredibly like that gargoyle. Yeah, Mauricio, the Mauricio, the servant. The servant, yeah. Who, the man lamenting about the end of the orgies. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so right then and there, you know, I started to kind of go like, oh, oh all right, we have, we have something that is, is suggesting uh, a territory beyond psychological realism even beyond this sort of staid morality of of something like Griffith or whatever like that these aren't I don't know for lack of a better term like real people that we might be dealing with here right and what's real is you know what we're seeing you know these trees the sun these these bodies like in this beautiful sort of rural countryside and industrial kind of in intruding on that right but it was very revealing to me uh listening to or reading rocha write about this and say like for brazilians you know at least the filmmakers of of the 60s and 70s they were like it was all about jean vigo flaherty and mauro Right, so if you put those filmmakers together, Vigo and Flaherty, you're kind of getting at something that's like you know this film that veers from expressionism in its opening to a pastoral kind of documentary to this like romantic, poetic, mythical thing. Yeah, like French poetic realism. Yeah, I mean, Rocha even compared some of this film to Ford because there's an old-fashioned brawl and there's also like yeah. men chasing each other on rocks and waterfalls like like it's a western, you know? It really does slip in and out of like many different modes of filmmaking that seem like a synthesis of a lot of things that were happening at the time but also happening uh, 10 years in the future of when this film was actually made, which is something that I found pretty remarkable. Well, I think it speaks to your uh, introduction Marsh, where, you know, you were talking about that, look, we were looking at Germany. There was a very well-established industry with lots of filmmakers, you know, learning from each other, pushing each other, being inspired inspired by each other. And and then Hollywood being like, damn, Germany fucking rocks. We got to get some of that shit over here. And, and Hitchcock <laughs> is working at UFA. You know, he's apprenticing there. But for this guy, 
uh, what was the Brazilian film industry. So he's drawing probably from France, from Germany. He's taking, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. bits and pieces of all this other very, very exciting stuff that he's seeing and pulling it together into this, this, yeah, this synthesis of his own. There's so much more going on here that, that I think makes it so exciting, but also why I read, and you could probably speak to this as well, but that when it was released, it was like savage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was funny reading a critic mentioning, you know, when you're looking at the critics of the time, people calling it the worst film ever made, which is just like kind of hilarious to think about. Like, even if the film is rather perplexing and even today I I watch this film and I think it's rather perplexing at times. (laughs) The idea that it's the worst film ever made as compared to some other just like primitive thing that was made at the time or like something really sloppy is really amusing to me. Mm -hmm. But the film is, you know, you're talking about it taking a while to find its wavelength my experience was as if i started on its wavelength because i felt like i was understanding that opening sequence and then then because of when it was shifting into all these different modes i would find something new to hold on to but then at other points it was as if the story was just breezing past me and then eventually it became the images were the only thing i could hold on to like that was the language that was speaking to me just like trying to find some truth and some something I could, you know, wrap my mind around just by looking at these images and the way that the camera was wandering through all of these spaces, even if I was lost at times in terms of what was developing amongst this love triangle or other factors of industry as they related to that love triangle. For me, I I kept thinking about Raul Ruiz while I was watching the film, Mm. and I was specifically thinking about, you know, that, that great essay he once wrote about central conflict theory and, you know, uh, becoming so accustomed to a very, you know, American and very Hollywood approach to narrative structure. And, you know, you got to, within the first however many minutes, make it very clear to everybody, like, what the story is, what the rules are, what the what the central conflict is going to be. And then everything sort of revolves around that, you know, the pressures are all towards this thing. And this film really resists that it it really struggles against it you know like there really isn't a, a central conflict in that sense you know it isn't it doesn't revolve around like am i gonna get to pull the construction project off you know you'd see that and then the the love triangle would be the subplot or whatever like no the the construction's happening and that's clearly very important to him but but that's not really his main concern, nor is the love triangle immediately his concern. No, he's concern. kind of slow to catch on. Sonia's into him before, you know, he's into her. Marcos is very mercurial. He's hard to read, and and it's like, yeah, the film slips into this almost poetic documentary mode. We're watching this factory being built. There is some interesting associational cutting with, like, his libido and machinery being erected and things like that throughout the film. Yeah, I wrote is, down in my notes, like, erection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is, there is a lot of erecting, and, you know, Mauro's on record saying he had read Freud and, and, had, was, and was thinking about it Very you know, obvious. at the time. Yes. Um, I love, did you guys catch, like, when he's uh, he's like on the train, you know, going out to the countryside towards the beginning, and it cuts to these like metal towers, and it's like cuts to him, 
it cuts to these metal towers, it cuts to him, it cuts back to the metal towers, and there's, like, a flag down on, like, one of the little towers. Like, he's, like, limp, you know? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. insane. There's, like, some really supercharged, like, sexual associational editing. But again, it's it's fleeting, and it's not certainly not, like, over overly pragmatic or anything. He's just, like vibing from one scene to the next in, in like a very intuitive way and ryan you because you mentioned right especially like the critical reaction to this uh by using the word primitive that's something that rosha talks about by saying you know morrow invests in a kind of expression that is contrary to the analysis of shallow critics who qualify him as primitive if primitive in cinematic terms means directing the camera by intuition rather than restricting it with reason then Jean Vigo, Robert Flaherty, Roberto Rossellini, Louis Buñuel, and Satya Ray, and many others would be primitives. <laughs> there you go. Rocha, yeah, he says it much more beautifully than I did. But yeah, that's, that's sort of what I was getting at. That's nice. Yeah, well, here's to regressive filmmaking, then, you know? <laughs> but it does, it does feel like it was a, the type of film where, you know, you think about German expressionism and you think about the way the shots are all designed in advance and the way they might have been storyboarded and how so much of it is about the production design and every element of the frame and the way that space functions in it. This film, I mean, sure, maybe it was storyboarded, but it doesn't have that vibe at all it has the sense that when they were in those spaces the camera was what was determining how everything would look and how everything would be framed it seems like it's reacting very much to the the presence of all of the performers as well as the environment itself reminds me a bit sometimes uh of of what you see in like Pasolini uh in that it was very clear he could just become enamored suddenly with a tree line or something, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and would probably capture something like that to, to figure out where it should be in the editing room, you know, where to place it. Uh, and, and yeah, again, if that's, if that is considered in some way, shape or form like primitive, then, then <laughs> like, man, I'm, then I'm, then I'm a fan of primitive art. Yeah. yeah then like, honestly, sophistication or whatever is fucking boring. It sucks. Yeah. You know? Or it's just, it's, it's predictable or as, as, uh, as Bordwell would eventually write about classical Hollywood, right? Excessively obvious maybe. And there's nothing excessively obvious about this film at all. No. Except for maybe the erections. Well, yes. Yeah. The hor- <laughs> the, the certain, the, the, you know, the stirring of his loins was very uh, yeah. apparent. Um, God, yeah, that Freud thing is so funny that specifically that quote from Morrow where he mentions like when Freud fever took hold, I read everything that he wrote and I could get a hold of. And it's just funny thinking about it. I mean, that's like Freud one fever. of the fun. Yeah, Freud fever. And it's just like, I love that. You know, it's, I mean, maybe it's too like over really obvious but there is something really incredible about watching silent films and watching people from a hundred years ago and it's also funny thinking about films contemporary with freud you know you think about films that are laced with freudian qualities like imagining a filmmaker making a film at the same time that freud was like writing books and then going to get the latest take from freud and seeing how he could potentially incorporate it into his film is just like extremely funny to me yeah it's like now we have uh you know, Harry Potter fever, but then we had Freud fever, you know? This is what they took from us. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's everyone's turning to Elon Musk for inspiration today, <laughs> yeah. you know? And Joe Rogan, you know? 
one of the things that makes it sort of challenging to get, uh, again, on like a personal level, like to get my film students sometimes to, to, to sort of watch silent films, right? It's, it's, it's a big, it's a big undertaking to get them to watch films uh, from a hundred years ago. And, and one of the things that I have to remind them about with Eisenstein and with Soviet montage and, and, you know, again, specifically like his silent stuff is, is that I'm like, do you not understand that you're sitting here and being like, this is difficult and I can't connect to it and I can't get it. And like, whatever it's, it's, it's pretentious or they'll say, it's just like, you know, it's impossible to understand it, blah, 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 blah. And like, there's no, there's no, there's no wonder this thing didn't continue on and it didn't connect with audiences. And I, I, again, I have to like get in their face and remind them that like Battleship Potemkin was like the fucking Avengers end game for millions of illiterate Soviet peasants. These people couldn't read books and they could connect with these movies and they could watch them and they could take things away from them and find them to be emotional and immersive and stimulating. So don't tell me that, that you know, <laughs> like you, you can't connect, you can't get it. It's like something happened where in that era, like people soared too high perhaps, you know? And then over the years, We've walked things back. We've simplified them. If anything, movies have gotten more fucking primitive. Uh, just to, to sort of steal that that terminology. To me, like, so much of what you see, you know, people people saying is, like, incredibly moving or powerful today is, is to me, like, the most basic and, and just, you know, simple crap. Like, there's nothing to it. I mean, know? that's basically what Rosha says. Like, if you're shooting coverage, you're just a mechanical nothing filmmaker. You're not thinking, yeah. you know? And that's why it's so heartbreaking that film didn't take this path. I mean, you know, when we're talking about this hybrid cinema, this weird moment in time where things were transitioning from the silent era into the sound era, and we have a film like this that is primarily people aren't speaking. We don't have too many invasive moments of dialogue where coverage would even be necessary. But every now and then there's some dialogue that's peppered in. There's some sound effects. There's some, some musical cues that are very much linked in a way that, you know, it would be in sound cinema and I kind of wish at times that this is the direction that movies went in I mean in a way it's like the ideal yeah. movie dialogue should never have been synced people I know <laughs> I know Abel Gantz would agree with me you keep the image and the sound separate and then do a hundred years of cinema and what would have happened you know yeah mind-blowing yeah. stuff to think about people have come to favor rules and laws and standards and practices over concepts in yeah. in filmmaking so many people anyway uh that it, it's like people do things simply because again like this is the way it's supposed to be done right this is like how you make a movie and how you make it look like a movie and it's like people don't even know what a fucking movie is like we haven't even scratched the surface on what a movie could have been, might have been, if it weren't for, you know, fucking Al Jolson open up in his, opening up his big fucking mouth or whatever, you know? <laughs> Ain't it the truth. In, in spite of what I just said, like, the sound in this film is actually 
I think quite complex. I mean, they're using off-screen sound in a non-synced, you know, Vitaphone post post sound added on at the last minute kind of thing. But there's some really intricately designed stuff where characters are, are hearing things off, you know, off-screen and it's cueing actions. Uh, and it certainly helps for the brawl, right? I want to talk <laughs> about the brawl, yeah. um, especially because again, here's like an, an example where. Uh, yes, the film turns into a John Ford movie for five minutes as Marcos yeah. uh, saunter is, I mean, and this is like fucked up too, because he's like the boss, you know, of this like construction site. And he's going to like teach the workers a lesson. He says like, show show you the face of the manager uh, at the end, which is a really fucked up thing to say. But Marcos just like walks into this bar and starts drinking. And basically in like within two minutes, he's got all the laborers trying to beat his ass and everyone's fighting. But in that sequence, it's like Soviet montage, like gun, shoe, like all these little fragments, right, that make up this larger brawl. And there's some good sort of like, you know, longer shot gags with the barrel and the bartender <laughs> and stuff like that. But it's a very cut up, you know, this guy had no really not a lot of money making this movie, not a lot of setups. So it's this fragmentary experience. But I found it to be very wonderful. Yeah, I loved all of the people in that scene. They they felt like they were just as much a part of the environment as the set design itself. They all feel like men that belonged in a bar after a long, hard day of work. I mean, just like the the you know corroded alcoholic nose of the bartender or oh, the way God. these guys looked when they were lifting the barrels up in the air and sucking the booze from the valve at the bottom of it yeah i loved i loved when the the bill arrived as well and it was <laughs> a a hilarious it was a hilarious tab shall we say it was like it was like 12 bottles nine barrels <laughs> yeah i wrote it down yeah 15 bottles 15 casks nine glasses one barrel and then one it said chemist yeah. in the translate in the subs i, I had I yeah I, I wondered what that meant as well i was like does this mean like drugs or something like yeah <laughs> i mean he was he was hopped up but he's a he's a tough guy you know so he he beats the shit out of a lot of people and sort of like gives the laborers a talking to dude was reading freud but probably not reading marks I mean, yeah, (laughs) Uh, for sure. And like, if it is to me, you know, this like question of of Marco Marcos, like softening maybe over time, like this is a moment where it shows that like ultimately, yeah, he is this just like brute, you know? Yeah, he comes Mm -hmm. from a wealthy family, but goddamn, look what he did to his wife. He just fucking blasted her. And now he's here teaching the workers a lesson. Like, dude, he, he, he moves throughout this film like Jack the Ripper in <laughs> the the final sequence of Waxworks. I was like so uncomfortable by him. I it was just a, an air of menace and dread that surrounded him. And even when like Sonia starts to become enamored with him, like I was like Sonia's got a nice guy. Like what, what are you doing? Like you know, and this is really where the love triangle kind of starts to develop, right? So we have Sonia and we have Desio. Desio, her, I guess it was sort of intimated that they're kind of like 
legally siblings? She's a, she's like I don't know if she's legally adopted, but she was taken in by the wheelchair bound, you know, grandmother. Right. And so Desio is in love with her, and Desio is you know the the son or yeah. the grandson. Um, so they're yes, they're they're not technically related, but they're very much these three people are a family. Yeah. And two of them are in love. Yeah. yeah. For all intents and purposes, they're brother and sister, and uh, Sonia starts to develop eyes for this, you know, this this stalking brutish man of industry. <laughs> nice little mustache. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, like the way he moved around and sort of hovered around that couple and their relationship, I saw him as a predator. I really did see him as a predator, which makes the rest of the film like again, even like more ponderous to me as to like what what we're supposed to actually like make of this guy. Like, yeah. you know, is he the romantic lead or is he, uh, yeah. Is he, uh, a dastardly, uh, mustachioed sex predator? Yeah. Well, again, like as the film develops, there are two, I think, I guess, key moments in Marcos's alleged development where, uh, he <laughs> saves, uh, people, well, saves one person from drowning, and attempts to save another, right? So, like, again, in perhaps the the twisted mind of Humberto Mauro, uh, this is, you know, his path to grace. However, we'll talk about the ending in in a bit, but uh, I think it's open to interpretation, to be honest. It's a grim vision. There's no doubt about that. I also, can you, can you, um, can you clarify something for me? Because I started to think that I was, like, losing my mind, but... <laughs> There's another guy yeah. that looks exactly like Marcos, right? Yeah. There's there's a dude. I yeah. mean, I swear to God, they looked like identical twins. Yeah. And I started to lose track of who was who. But in a way, that kind of made the experience more interesting for me. The exact same thing happened to me. Like when I was referring to the fact that it felt as though the plot was breezing past me, it became a, an assortment of faces, two of which looked extremely similar and they like had dre- dressed in a very similar manner into the, again, the way this camera moves in a way where it's it's not mechanical, it's not really setting up everyone's power relationships in a way that feels as if it was like planned very intricately in advance. I had a hard time understanding exactly how all of these figures were relating to each other within the midst of it. Yeah, well, there's some very daring flashbacks in this film that are not cued, right? So another sort of, you know, left field technique where all of the sudden we're in a flashback, but we don't know it and we don't know why and we don't know what's going on. And yeah, Marcos looks very similar to this man who is his business partner slash boss. He's introduced in the beginning in the scene where Marcos goes to work after he's acquitted uh, or along, you know, when that process is going on. And they're like, yeah, we'll send you out here. That's the guy with the mustache. And that's the guy who later in the film in these flashbacks is revealed to be the one that was sleeping with Marcos's fiance. 
Allegedly. Allegedly. It's <laughs> it's intimated. There's a there's a flashback to a party scene. Well, and there's the flashback to the boat, right? Do you remember that? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, so that's that, especially when it felt like it was prison pants. Yeah. Well, that's the scene that is that's the scene that's showing that like before he he, he got married, he was cucked by his boss or his business partner, the other mustachioed man. And then we see scenes at a party of his wife talking to the mustachioed man, but it's confusing because Marcos's wife looks just like Sonia, and they're not the same actress, but they're both blondes. Mm. There's actually a lot of doubling in this film. And in fact, the opening and closing of this film are doubled like a loop. And I think that's also why the film is open to interpretation, right? So uh, plot-wise, like, Marcos is bumming around on this farm, getting, you know, erotic industry stuff going on. Um, And yes, he falls for Sonia, and they play in the lily pads, and they play at the waterfall. And there's just scene after scene of just gorgeous light and trees and grass. And I mean, it's just stunning. Again, and just like, I forgot like anything that was going on in the film and was just like, watching these people play in the, the fields, you know? It was like Renoir's A Day in the Country, yes. you know? It was just, like, beautiful. You're hanging out on the swing while some music's playing. You're taking a little nap. You're, you're then singing a little ditty when you wake up. Uh, it's a lovely summer <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, this guy, you know, for all his troubles, he really doesn't have a care in the world. Oh, no. no. And so ultimately, yeah, Sonia like chooses him over Desio. And this leads to, you know, uh, your classic uh, masculine moment of violence as Desio confronts Marcos on top of the waterfall. And poor Desio. We've seen what Marcos can do in a brawl in this film. And when he was running (laughs) to challenge him, I was like, this guy doesn't even have a mustache. There's no no fucking way that he can take this guy. (laughs) That guy, he took out a goddamn bar full of construction workers all by himself, single-handedly. Like, you're fucking toast. And he does deliver, I have to say, a hilariously limp slap to uh, trigger the brawl. Yes. Uh, Desio strikes the first blow and it is, at best, a glancing one. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have a chance, especially earlier in the film where you see Marcos just, like, toying with another man in the bar where he knocks his hat off, and then he, the man keeps demanding Marcos pick it back up, and he does, pretends to get the dirt off of it, but then just tosses it back on the floor again and then eventually gives him a good punch as if he kind of felt like my cat when she's playing with a toy and or even just a, a lot of the times she's caught a mouse, you know, taunting it, playing with it a little bit, um, and then eventually ending its life. But that's sort of the way Marcos behaves. It's also in that moment, too, you know, these brief moments where we do get audio and, like, dialogue that's synced up, you know, quote-unquote, to images in the film. I like that they chose to give us the, like, slurring, drunken audio at one moment. That, like, one of the voices we hear in the film is just a man, like, completely intoxicated and slurring for an extended period of time. Yeah, because it doesn't matter what's being said. It just is, like, another sound effect, you know? Words as sound effects. It matters how how it's being said. I love that shit. Um, And I do want to mention, you know, this sort of, like, duel they have very briefly uh, quickly turns into, you know, for, for how much this film resists conventional narrative, all of the sudden it's a Griffith 
slash Ford film as he's trying to save Desio, who's like rolling down the waterfall in the rocks. Uh, and, you know, he's like, dude, chill out. We don't have to like kill each other, you know? Uh, I'm just going to steal your girl. No big deal. Uh, and then it's like intercutting with Sonia running through the forest, back to the river, back to the forest, back to the river. And all of a sudden, it's a fucking goddamn American film in this moment, you know? Yes, yeah. That waterfall itself kind of looked like some of the interior spaces in Waxworks because it's like a very rocky, uh, smooth waterfall. And the way you watch Marcos as he's running down it and trying to catch up to <laughs> Desio, it's, it does it kind of resembled the way inside the uh, Haroon's, you know, his big estate as everyone was running around these impossible stairways. Definitely. And then the film concludes with the, a funeral and a wedding and there's a lot of a lot of heavy cross classic ford again imagery yeah (laughs) yeah right a funeral and a wedding real bummer of a wedding man (laughs) it is a it is a very yeah it is a bummer of a wedding and it's also revealed right that the mother or grandmother has died as well yeah uh her chair her wheelchair is empty is empty yeah again in a nice lyrical kind of flourish you know but also uh, again, you know, like Zizek would have a field day with all the uh, the Freudian implications behind this, behind his libido, the culmination of their relationship, the the passing of the the incestuous, you know, abomination that was being suggested, perhaps, and and uh, so yes, once all that's been dealt with, then yeah, we can now we can now consummate. You yes, know? and yet, what got me is that it looks like identical shots from the opening. And it's yeah. the shot of the bride and groom's feet, like walking on carpet. And these shots like reminded me of like Maya Darren or Kenneth Anger, like handmade films, yeah. you know, from that period. Like these little lyrical snippets that are just like three second, it's kind of slow-mo uh, shots that are like so dreamlike. And we're back where we started. And then I think it does, uh, you know, beg the question. Is he just, <laughs> what's, you know, what's he going to do? Gonna you know what the fuck, yeah, man, yeah. right? Yeah. It, it does feel over. like it's going to be a big circle. Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly could be unless you buy, yeah, that the these tragedies or the tragedy that occurred you know, made him a, a new man or Helped a different man. Yeah, <laughs> in a in a you know a, a a new start, a fresh marriage, uh, like a John Ford film. That'll that'll keep us. You yeah. know, it takes uh, it takes a couple of killings. <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, someone's got to die for everyone to live happily ever right. after. <laughs> I just kept scratching my head after the film was over and going like, man, this 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 did not feel at the end of it, like a movie that was made in 1932 um, in a very crude fashion, you know? No No. offense to the filmmaker, but again, like financially speaking, and the fact that he didn't have an industry of professionals around him establishing certain approaches and practices and styles or whatever, you know? But that this thing was like incredibly advanced on a certain level. I guess it all comes back to the power of images then. You know, even if it has like a lower budget or these other like things in its way, it's just both of these films really do sort of communicate the theme very well that I was, I tasked you both with finding the universal language. How much can a film speak to you 
simply through its images. And as I said, even though there were times in Ganga Bruta where I was maybe a little bit confused as to the plot, I don't think I was ever lost as to the emotional truth of the film because there was so much purity and truth in all of those images. So I salute you both. Yeah, the universal language of cinema. Guys trying to smash and uh, having to kill people to do so, right? Oh, yeah. So, Ryan, these were our... These were our picks. What about you? You know, if you had to to take somebody, say again, like a, a film student that isn't very comfortable with silent cinema, you know, and you were trying to, to blow their mind and show them how uh, incredible and rewarding it could be. What, what, what's, a, what's a film that comes to your mind? Yeah, well, I guess specifically for a silent film produced outside of an English-speaking country, which was like another element that I had challenged you both, and I realized I've forgotten to uh, bring up at any point during this episode. But in, in terms of specifically something like that to get someone jazzed about silent cinema, I would really point them to the body of work from the great Swedish director Victor Sjöström. And if I had to pick one, I mean, I love... The films of his I've seen, but specifically The Outlaw and His Wife from 1918 is in a remarkable film. It's about a stranger who arrives at the farm of a widow, but and he starts to work for her, but it's revealed that he's an escaped thief from prison. Um, and the two of them sort of take off and forge their own path in the mountains of Iceland. And it is just, it's an, it's an incredibly beautiful film. It, it kind of deals with a lot of tropes that you would find in many different genres from that point onwards. It even has like qualities of a Western, despite the fact that it's just in the mountains in, in Iceland. It's, it's primarily just the fact that it's these two outlaws on the run. It's an incredibly exciting and, and beautiful film. But of course, his other films, such as The Phantom Carriage, is probably the the best one to introduce to someone who who would be a bit timid or nervous about it because it has so many qualities that you would find in in contemporary horror even that uh, really resonate. I'm a big fan of The Wind. Have you seen that? I haven't actually. Ooh, just gonna sprinkle on a little wind on top of this. That's uh, Sostrom's 1928 film starring Lillian Gish, where she literally battles the wind. Uh-huh. Uh, it fucking rules. Definitely check that out as well. Yeah, those movies, all those movies are so good. He Who Gets Slapped is also Ooh, super banger. awesome. Good clown movie. We'll do a clown week soon. Totally. <laughs> so yeah, well, it was it was my topic, and next up we have Marsh. What are you uh, tasking us with uh, next time? Well, it's been really cold here recently, and all week I could think when it was zero degrees out, like... I got to think of a topic. I got to think of a topic. And all I could think of was how cold it was. And then I was thinking, I already picked summer and I already picked fall. Can I really, really do this? Can I pick winter? And the answer was no. I can't do it. So I want you to take me on a vacation. And I want you to take me on that vacation to the Caribbean. Bring me films from the islands in the sea. I want to get out of this cold Chicago weather and uh, see what's going down in a, in a region of cinema I'm not too familiar with outside of maybe some uh, canonical classics from Cuba or Jamaica. So take me there. All right. I'll buy you a first class ticket. It'll be a lovely trip. 
my gift to you. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Só uma coisa, o que, que o senhor acha que é cinema? Então disse a ele, cinema é cachoeira. Isso ficou. Deixa eu ver uma cachoeira, pensa logo em cinema. O cinema é cachoeira. Questão de natureza. Tem momentos de natureza que se você não filmar, não filma mais nunca. Nunca lá vai se apresentar.